0: This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. I will admit that it is days like this that I wish I was British so I could preach out of the book of Isaiah. But anyway, I'll leave that to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Nevertheless, we have a great passage in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 and also a good occasion as it is New Year's Eve. It's certainly hard to believe that 2024 is here already. And of course, with every new year, we do turn over a new page, right along with the fireworks, if you partake in that, and the moon pie drops and black-eyed peas, collard greens, and if you're lucky, maybe even some gumbo. I hope that you all take this time to reflect on what the Lord has done in your life over the past Year and to see how he's been working and where he's leading you for this next year as well. And we do think a new year is a time of beginning. It's a time of refreshment. And I'm sure if you're like me, plenty of you are kind of running on empty at the moment, right? Not only can holidays be hectic, but it's been quite a year for many of us, full of many challenges. So this morning we're going to consider the topic of Renewal. And with renewal, we're not just talking about hitting the gym or changing your diet or those things, which for me is probably an appropriate thing to do. But we are talking about being renewed by the Lord Himself. So if you look with me to Isaiah chapter 40, we will read verses 27 through 31. We're picking up where Brian left off on our Old Testament reading this morning. Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob... And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray together. Father, the the grass withers, the flower fades. But your word, O God, it will stand forever. Would you write your truth on our hearts this morning? for we ask it in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet tells them about the future judgment that's going to come at the hand of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And in chapter 39, it ends on a pretty grim note, with Jerusalem is going to fall to Babylon, and the people are going to be exiled. And this is all going to take place 100 years after Isaiah's death. They're going to be stripped from their homes. They're going to be live as captives in a foreign land. And this is all we know because of their sin. This is a form of divine punishment, which they do justly deserve. But then in chapter 40, the book starts to take a different note. Isaiah begins to prophesy about that to this remnant, these people who are suffering, he is prophesying to them that they are going to return to the land, and that actually a great hope awaits them, an even greater hope than they can imagine. And although he's speaking... Roughly 150 years, or before 150 years really, before the end of the exile, you already knew what these exiles, this remnant, is going to be thinking. It's, it's not really that hard to guess. And really, if we were in their, their same shoes, or sandals, whatever, shoes, we would ask the same things. Has God forgotten us? Is He still willing to save us? And after all this time, is He even able to save us? And what is the word that God tells his prophet? What is the word that God speaks to the exiles in Babylon? It's a word of comfort. Comfort my people. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, at verse 1, we see that comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. So despite their rejection, despite all that has taken place in their suffering, we see God has not forgotten his people, and that there's a great restoration that's going to come, a time of comfort, of consolation, we might call it. And the people are going to return to the promised land, and even something greater is waiting for them. Because that return, that return home to Jerusalem is points to something greater, doesn't it? Because who is really the hope of the people? Who's the hope of any people Well, his name is Jesus, right? You may remember that Simeon, the prophet, when he held the child Christ in his hands, what was he waiting for? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of the people. And it is when he took Jesus in his hands, which is really still one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, he pronounced that my eyes have seen your salvation. So overjoyed, he said, let your servant depart in peace. I can die. I've seen what you promised me. That Jesus here is the true comfort in Israel and the world. So we keep all of that in mind. Now the first thing that we notice in verses 27 and 28 of our text is this reality of the complaint. We might even say the absurdity of their complaints. right? That both their complaints and our complaints, when we're complaining in this manner, they're real. right? There's no doubting that. We feel them, we experience them, we have that feeling of hopelessness like they did. But in light of our God, and in light of our character, those complaints are really groundless. The complaints are real, but they're also irrational. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Now, again, to be fair, this makes sense, what they're saying, right? Right? God's people are in exile. And so what do they ask? Has God lost sight of me? Have His plans for His people? He had this great plan. Has it all fallen apart? Has it been thwarted? Have these great nations shown that them and their gods are actually greater than Yahweh, the God of Israel? Maybe even these idols of Babylon are stronger than Yahweh. They're almost making accusations of God. They have to wonder, I mean, how could all this misfortune be the plan of God. Something has to have gone wrong. God's not here. God's not in control. They also say at the end of that verse, right? He isn't bringing justice, right? My evil adversaries, these aren't good people, and they just keep winning. So they complain and they cry and they wonder, does God even dismiss my cries for help? And like the psalmist, they cry in Psalm 89 46, How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And if we take all that and kind of distill it down, I think it comes to one question. Has God forgotten me? Have you ever felt that way before? I mean, everything can be going super well, and then all just instantly it spirals out of control, right? All it takes is... One phone call, right? One doctor's visit, one meeting with a boss, and it seems like everything is out of control. And even though we know we shouldn't, we usually ask those same things. Has God forgotten me? Does God still love me? The great Scottish reformer John Knox said that the way that Satan first drew Adam and Eve away from their obedience to God was by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. That God did not love them. Now, for God's people, this is, we'd say this is a lie straight from the pit of hell, right? This is straight from the mouth of the devil himself. And it's an old ploy of Satan Jews bag. He comes back to the same things, it's nothing new, and we know it. We've probably fallen victim to it before, and we might even do it again. Now, these complaints they had, and we say the complaints we have as well. They're real in our hearts, but they're also irrational. We might even say they're absurd. Notice what the prophet, how he addresses the people as well. He said, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? He uses both names. First, he's citing God's covenant promises to them. It's almost to say, do you really believe that God has forgotten His covenant people? Could God really forget you of all the people in the earth? And for us today, when we face weaknesses, when we face our different trials, we have to ask, has Jesus really forgotten his church? Has Jesus forgotten his bride whom he purchased with his very own blood? No. May it never be. No way. If God has paid the ultimate price for his people, then we know there's nothing that can separate us from his love. But they wonder and they ask. Now, if you can recall the book of Genesis, you'll remember that Jacob and Israel Are those different people? No, they're one person. So why are both names used here? And I think it's appropriate because Jacob, he kind of suffered a type of exile, didn't he? For 20 years, the trickster himself, Right, he was tricked and he served in the house of Laban as a type of an exile. Also, he's talking to people who really aren't that great. And when you think of great upstanding holy men in the Bible... Jacob's probably not the guy who comes to your mind, right? He was a deceiver. His name meant deceiver, and that's really what he was. Remember, he deceived his brothers to steal his birthright, and then he tricked his father into giving him his blessing. So Jacob, we'd say in and of himself, was an unworthy guy. Probably not a guy you really want to hang out with. But at Peniel, after his encounter with God, he was named Israel, right? He was unworthy, but he also was chosen and he was loved by God. It's also significant that we see both names continue on. He uses both names. He was Jacob, the unworthy deceiver, but he was also Israel and he was chosen by the Lord. He was a sinner and a saint, we could say, just like the remnant of exiles and just like us who have faith in Christ with the remnant of sin still there, sinner and a saint. So Isaiah continues to break down their logical fallacy. If you look at verse 28, he keeps going. He says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Notice how he says it. He says, Have you not known? Have you... Not heard, right? He doesn't say, have you known or have you heard? Because he knew the answer. They had heard it and they had heard it a lot. They knew and they heard. They knew God's word, right? They had seen his great works. These people were recipients of God's grace. And he had proven time and time again, God had shown his people how much he loved them. Even though what they looked around at the current time wasn't so great, God had proved his love. We even think about the calling of their father Abraham, right? He's just this Gentile pagan God who God calls by his, just by His grace and makes Him a great nation. After the people, they're held captive in Egypt for 430 years. And God, He bore them on eagles' wings. He rescued them out of bondage, carried them across the Red Sea, and destroyed all of God's enemies in their wake. Exodus nineteen four: you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So we'd say time and time again these people had seen that God had proved his chesed, his covenant faithfulness to his people. But the exiles, here's the problem. They're humans, just like us. And what do feeble humans do? I know I do it all the time. I forget. I forget my phone walking out the door every single day just about. I have to run back in. Right? We say our goodbye, I go my way to work, and hey, I'm back in. It was a short day. No, it's, it's a daily thing. But in Scripture, we see this incessant command. It's all over this command to do it To remember. Because God knows that we're not going to do it on our own. We're going to forget. In one of my favorite passages of Scripture, something kind of odd happens. It's in Joshua chapter 4. And the people, they cross over the Jordan River, very similar to the way in which they crossed over the Red Sea. Which is saying, okay, Joshua has taken over from Moses. The people have entered the promised land. They crossed the Jordan. It's an important thing. And then Joshua tells them to do something interesting. He says, I want a man from each of the 12 tribes to go in the river. They grab a big stone and to set them up in Gilgal. What are they doing stacking up stones for? What's the point of that? Well, Joshua tells us in Joshua 4.24, so that all the peoples of the earth... May know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Right, these stones, they were signs so that the people would remember what God had done, because if not, they're just going to forget it. It So you've got to remember this. And they were told and instructed all right, you need to take your children there and show them and point it out and say, remember what God has done. Remember how faithful God has been to our people, because it's crucial that they remember. It's another reason that we're called to remember our baptism and to regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? they are signs of God's covenant faithfulness and a means of grace. It reminds us of God's love because we're so quick to forget. We have to remember the promises that God has made to us and to our children. Even this morning, really my goal is not to get up and tell you something that you've never heard before, Perhaps you might hear something in a different way, but my goal in keeping the spirit of this text is to remind you of your God, hopefully the God that you already know, to remind you who your God is and what He has done for you. So what do you think God would have us do as we enter a new year? Probably many things. As we kind of start circling this sun, this ball of fire in the sky for another 365 days, I think two things that are good, that I certainly believe in, is that we are to remember our God, remember your God, and remember his promises, and cling to his promises. Because the truth is, we don't know what's going to happen in this year. We really don't. There are preachers, and I'll use the term very lightly, but there are preachers all around the country today. They're going to you know, prophesy. It's a year of jubilee and thanksgiving and all this. There's going to be prosperity and financial blessing for 2024. But they don't know. Could be, could be. But they don't know because you know they said the same thing before 2020, and that didn't turn out quite as well. Anyway, I won't probably put that out there. So whatever awaits us, though, here's the thing: feast or famine, we have hope and we have assurance because we know our God, right? Because we know. Who our God is. And the second major lesson we see in this text is we find hope in the greatness and the graciousness of our God. Well, how do we learn that He's great? What does this text say? Well, first, He is eternal. The second line of verse 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God. You may recognize that Lord is in all caps, so it's invoking Yahweh, God's covenant name. So what is this saying? The covenant-keeping God of Israel He is an everlasting God. He has no beginning or no end. Our God is. I am that I am, says your God. He will be what He will be and there is none like Him. He's not like these silly idols of Babylon and Assyria, which were created by sinful hearts and sinful hands. Isaiah tells us in this passage, to whom then will you liken God? Because there is none like Him. John Calvin said this, the prophet calls him eternal and thus distinguishes him from all idols which endure but for a time and were made by men. And truly, if this were deeply seated in our hearts, there would no longer be any room for distrust. If we understood that our God was eternal, we understood what that meant, there is really none like him. There'd be no room left for us to not trust him. Remember your God, he's eternal. He's eternal. Second, he is the creator. Line 3 says he is the creator of the ends of the earth. Right? Everything in creation came into existence by the word of his power. He even sustains and upholds all things. If you look up a few verses, to verse 12, we see this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure of? And weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. How great is our God? Well, one illustration he gives here is that all the water, all the water on this globe, every ocean, every lake, every river, how much is that to him? It's about that much. It's about that much. All the great mountains, right? Everest and all the others in the Himalayas that I can't pronounce. I looked them up. I can't pronounce them. He weighs them in the scales. There's over 330 people who have died just trying to climb Everest, and God just kicks it over like an anthill. Nothing to our God. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. What is He talking about? He's talking about the stars. He calls out and remembers all the stars by name. Well, to test you here, do you know how many stars are in the universe? Well, I don't either, but I asked Google. And Google says this, there are 200 billion trillion stars. Is that right? I have no idea. Sounds like a big number. I think it could be close. The point here is that there are a lot of stars. And if God remembers each of those stars, is He going to forget His people? No. No. He remembers His people. Even the furthest reaches of the earth... The most desolate places of the earth, they were created by God, and he rules over them as well. And this should probably bring some comfort to the exiles, shouldn't it? Because are they living in Israel? Are they living in the Holy Land? No, they weren't. They were exiles in Babylon. But see, he was still in control all the same. And if he was in control all over the earth, they can have confidence that they could take care of him even in Babylon. Well, that's also good news to us because we don't really know where we're going to find ourselves this next year, right? Whether you're in a church building, whether you're in an ICU room, whether you're overseas, our God is there, and our God is with you. Third, he is all-powerful. We might say omnipotent. Look at line four. He does not faint or grow weary. Now, it's interesting he says that because who's Isaiah talking to? Well, he's talking to faint and weary, weak people. But that doesn't describe our God. He never gets tired, and there is no end to his power. God rules the people of the earth. He rules every star in the heavens, everything that is, and he never sweats a drop, never sweats a drop. Isaiah 40, 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales, behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing, and emptiness. We're saying all the nations, with all their great power and military and all those, they are counted as nothing. They're like that little last drop in the bucket that you gotta shake to get out. They're nothing compared to our gods. They're the leftover dust on the scales, that last little bit you just gotta blow off. Our God is not afraid of Babylon. He wasn't afraid of Assyria or Persia or the Roman Empire. Today, he's not afraid of Russia or China or the USA, any of that. They are less than nothing in emptiness compared to his power. Now it's good news that our God doesn't run out of energy because he never grows weary of doing good. Right? He doesn't have to stop and take a nap. His resources, they don't run out. Maybe you have a close friend who, if you were in a bind, I mean, they would do just about anything for you. But you know, even a close friend, they can only help you so far. At some point, their energy, whether it's emotional or physical or whether they're resources, it will run out. Your problem might be too big and too great for them to solve, but not with God. He owns it all. He never runs out of energy. It's inexhaustible. And most of all, with our sin problem. Even that was not too great, and that's why He sent us His Son. Fourth, He is all-knowing or omniscient. Line 5 says His understanding is unsearchable. There are no limits to His knowledge or to His wisdom. Verse 14, to whom did He consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Right? The exiles, they sat in misery in some ways we think as well. How is God going to figure this out? This doesn't look like it's the way it's supposed to go. He had already figured it out. He already had a plan. And his wisdom was so much greater than theirs, so much higher than theirs. In fact, we can never explore his wisdom God does not always do what we want and certainly not in the timing that we want. But that's a good thing because we don't understand what that's going to mean down the road. The scripture says all things work together. All things work together for our good and His glory. It's because He's the one who's working them together and it's all according to His plan. When we look at our lives and say, I just don't think there's any way that God can make something good come out of this. We're like these exiles. We have forgotten Our God, He's wise beyond all measure. There's no scale, there's no ACT test or whatever that you can measure His wisdom. It's unsearchable. He is all wise. So what this text teaches us is that we find hope in our God. We find hope in the character of who our God is and who He is and what He has done. And it seems that the greater that God appears to us, the smaller that our afflictions and trials, whatever that may be, will appear. we have a bigger view of God, we'll have a smaller view of those things that come against us. So if you want hope in the midst of despair, you have to remember who your God is. Behold your God. This is why we cling to His Word. This is why we study His Word. That's why it's so important to know His Word and to memorize it. It's not just to say that we have. We want to know our God. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. As you know, I used to work at the YMCA, so I've seen how poorly New Year's resolutions go, right? The gym's packed the first week, and it's just dwindled out by February. We're just taking people's money. But if you want a resolution that would be good, if you want to start, it doesn't have to be with the new year, but study your God through His Word, right? His Word is more precious than silver and gold. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. It's more necessary in the very air that we breathe. Why? Because it reveals to us our God. In this text, we see our God is great, which is good, but it doesn't end there. Not only is He great, but He's gracious. If we had a great God, again, that would be good, but what about me? I'm not so great. I'm still weak. What about me? And the good news is that He lifts up the weak. Those are exact ones that He does lift up. Verse 29. He gives... Power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So our God is strong. He's very strong. He's very powerful. All these attributes that have been reading about. But He shares that strength with His people. Not with the strong, not with the proud, but to the faint and to the weak. So perhaps you come in this morning and you feel a little discouraged. You feel weak. You feel powerless. Well, in this text there's good news for you. Because our Lord will give you strength. Remember what Paul said to the church in Corinth? 2 Corinthians 12.9 Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of all the great things I have done, my strength, no, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The only thing that he was willing to boast about was his weakness, because in his weakness Christ was made great. I must decrease and he must increase. One of my favorite things about playing football was the pregame speech, right? That's right before the team heads on the field. They gather all of the players around, and the coach, he gives them this moving speech that usually has a few expletives in it, so we'll leave that part out, but... He gives them an exciting speech and you're ready, you know, I'm ready to run through a wall and he's, what he's trying to do is get them to give everything that they have, all that they have and put it out on the field because he knows there's a lot in them that they have to give out. Of course, there's a few feelings like that. That's not at all what Isaiah is doing here. And really, that's not the role of a preacher either. Right? It's not my goal to fire you up and have you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What we need to do is see ourselves as weak, as broken, as in need of grace and renewal by the Lord. Maybe your problem this morning is not that you're too weak, but you don't realize how broken that you are. You're not weak enough. Maybe you're still trying to do things in your own power, and the text is clear, that will will never work. Verse 30, even youths "...shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted." Right? Human strength, even in the prime of life, is eventually going to give out. This is true for even the strongest and the youngest. A few weeks ago, a young man, Jaden Daniels, won the Heisman Trophy, which is given to the most outstanding player in college football, whatever that means. And while he was an electrifying player, one day his strength is going to give out. Nobody's going to want him to play for their team. His strength will fail. If you think about Bo Jackson, who was another Heisman winner, he's one of the greatest athletes of all time, and he had one hit to his hip, and he's done. He never played again. Now, if that's true on a physical level, and it certainly is, how true must that be on a spiritual level? right? No matter how strong or tough you think you are, your strength eventually will give out, but not... If you receive renewal from the Lord, there's an everlasting supply. Look at verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But it's those who wait on the Lord who have their strength renewed endlessly... It's a well that never runs dry. It's endless endurance to run the race that is before them. Whatever trials come before them, they have strength to continue. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Does it mean we do nothing? Is it holy procrastination or something like that? No. This wait is a hope. It's it's an expectant trust. It's the faith to take God at His word and to trust His promises. Now, for the remnant, this meant trusting God's promises in the midst of exile. Right. If they looked around them, they didn't see a lot of hope. They were supposed to look forward through that to the consolation that would come. We really share a lot with these exiles. Not everything, if you look around, you think everything is just going great. But we live with the assurance of God's promise. In our surroundings, they don't look great. However, we know that all things are going to be made new. God is going to make all things right. We have a certain hope in Jesus even when it feels like things are going out of control. So to wait on the Lord means to take Him at His word, knowing that He's going to work it together in His good timing and purpose. And God will renew His people. God will give you strength. This concept of being renewed is this idea of being, you keep putting on fresh strength. It's inexhaustible because none of us are Superman or the like, and you don't have to be. Trust your God. He will renew your strength. I want you to know that you're probably weaker than you think, but your God is stronger than you can imagine. And he shares his strength with those who wait upon him. And this is a strength that the text says goes through every season of life. Look back at it with me. Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with strength, with the strength of an eagle, right? They who fly safely out of reach from danger. They will run, which means through the most difficult times of life, they have the endurance to run without becoming weary. And they will even walk. It goes from greater to lesser. They will even walk through that daily grind of life. Through the every day they have strength without becoming faint. This is a complete strength. It's total renewal from the Lord. And it's available to all who trust in Him by faith, to all who rest upon Jesus. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt. Please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.